0: Welcome to Biocentury This Week. I'm Stephen Hansen, Director of Biopharma Intelligence at Biocentury, And I'll let my colleagues joining me this week introduce themselves.
1: I'm Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief.
2: I'm Steve Osden, Washington Editor.
1: I'm Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence.
0: On today's pod, highlights from the ASMO Conference, an update on the confirmation process for the next NIH Director, latest on the Inflation Reduction Act, and Abingworth's new clinical co-development fund. But first, for many, 2023 was a story of survival. In 2024, the story must be growth. Join BioCentury, BIA, and special guests November 14th on the sidelines of the Jeffries London Healthcare Conference for a special CEO and investor networking event, including a fireside chat between the former CEO of Ablinks, Edwin Moses, and BioCentury Editor-in-Chief, Simone Fishburne. We expect this event to sell out. Register today to claim your seat at biocenturyjeffreys.com. Wonderful, great. Well, I think we're going to kick off talking about the latest cancer conference. And so, Lauren, I know you've been uh, sort of busily digging through sort of the latest data and trends. Can you talk about what some of the highlights were?
1: Sure. Thanks, Stephen. It was a big conference. I think two of the themes that that I use to cover the big data that we saw are sort of practice changing phase three results and new progress in targeting newer solid tumor antigens. So the practice changing stuff was everything that we saw in the headlines over the last couple of weeks. One of them came from an antibody drug conjugate from Seagen and Astellas that was Padsev. It's been on the market for a while. But it was moved into the first-line setting for urothelial cancer with Keytruda, and it nearly doubled both overall survival and progression-free survival, which is a a huge advance for that indication. There was also data from Genentech for its ALK inhibitor, electinib. This was moved into the adjuvant non-small cell lung cancer indication, and the results were pretty striking. It was kind of reminiscent of when the EGFR inhibitor to moved into this adjuvant setting. This is another pretty common mutation in non cell lung cancer. And there, the disease free survival hazard ratio was 0.24, which means that there's a 76% reduction in the risk of disease recurrence over standard of care. So that was very exciting. And then, I guess, speaking of Tigriso, there was also some. Data from Johnson & Johnson that got a lot of attention. Uh, this was the phase three Mariposa study of its EGFR by CMET bispecific antibody, Ribrovant. And the data were really compelling, but especially if you looked at them within that phase three trial, I think the progression-free survival hazard ratio was about 30% over to Grisso, which again was, you know, a huge is a huge drug in first line EGFR non-small cell lung cancer. This suggests that there could be a bit of an efficacy advantage, but there were some concerns that maybe the Tupresso arm underperformed in that trial. And there are also some added toxicities in the bispecific arm, which included Johnson Johnson's own EGFR, small molecule inhibitor.
3: Lauren, it's funny that you just ended on the small molecule one, because in fact, I was going to ask you, as I kind of look across the the data that you've just talked about, a lot of it really does seem to be bi-specifics and ADCs and what we call advanced modalities. Is that the case that the breakthrough data is really coming from those technologies or they just make a bigger noise and there's also a lot of small molecules doing their business?
1: So I think it, it depends on the target. I think it was pretty split at this conference. So the ALK inhibitor is a small molecule. There was some progress in the KRAS inhibitor space. We saw the first data from Merck on their new KRAS inhibitor, which, you know, it was very early data, but the response rates were, were pretty high relative to what we've seen with the first generation inhibitors there. There were definitely some small molecules that I thought stood out at the conference, but... What I hadn't got into yet are some of the newer tumor antigen targets that we've sort of been following since these were discovered preclinically many years ago. And these make good targets for especially some of those immunotherapies or ADCs that are expressed on the surface of cancer cells. So there was DLL3, which was a it was actually a target that failed many years ago as an ADC target back when uh, AbbVie was developing one. But at this conference, Amgen shared some pretty compelling data for its bispecific antibody, T cell engager against this target in small cell lung cancer, which is a really tough indication. So that I think that was, you know, exciting because it's giving new life to this target. And it's also we've seen Amgen kind of struggle to follow up on its initial ADC approval. Um, there have been some dropped programs and some sort of changes in pipeline strategy around that. So this is a great opportunity. For them to differentiate. This is a first-in-class molecule.
3: I suppose another question I have then is, it. Um, I'm wondering also, you talked about small cell lung cancer, an indication that's been very difficult. And we've talked for a little bit about a lot of the, especially with PD-1s, the low-hanging fruit, should we say, has already been uh, picked. And I'm wondering if really oncology we've talked about it entering the hard work phase of oncology you know are they starting really to make headway in now some very very difficult cancers
1: is that something you're seeing that is that is something I was seeing at asthma this year in addition to some small cell lung cancer data there was some pretty interesting ovarian cancer data as well there was an ADC from Daiichi that's targeting cadherin 4 which is an emerging ADC target And the data there looked very good. That that's one of the three ADCs that was included in that big Merck deal a couple of weeks ago. And Regeneron also had data for a bi-specific antibody targeting MUC-16, which is another, you know, in both cases, those are targets that are expressed on, you know, a high percentage of ovarian cancers. And there hasn't been a ton of innovation in that cancer for for quite some time. So that was very early data. And I think the future there might involve combinations. And then we also saw from Regeneron a bispecific antibody targeting MUX16 and CD3, and that was very early data, but I think the future there might be combinations. The company is also testing that bispecific with another co-stimulatory bispecific that targets the same tumor antigen and a different T-cell target.
0: Great. Wonderful. Thanks, Lauren. Well, it's super interesting. There was lots of, uh, lots of stuff that you pumped out last week, so really great coverage. Everyone can check that out on uh, biocentury.com. Now, I think we'll turn our attention to Washington, where I know Steve is juggling uh, more than a few things here. I think we'll start off. Steve, so what is the latest in the process to get Monica Bertignoli confirmed as the new director of NIH?
2: So, so the interesting thing is on October 25, that's last week, The Senate Health Committee, which has jurisdiction over NIH, voted 15 to 6 to send her nomination to the floor for a vote. And I think that was really interesting. There are interesting things that came out of that vote. The bottom line, I think, is that there's still bipartisan support for NIH and for funding um, scientific research. But if you dig into it, there's some things that that are more interesting and maybe a little bit troubling going forward. So there were five Republicans who voted for Bertignoli. There was one Democrat who voted against, that was Bernie Sanders, the chairman of the committee. He said that he opposed Vertignoli because he doesn't think that she will, quote, take on the greed of the pharmaceutical industry, lower prescription drug prices in America, and move the NIH in a very, very different direction, end of his quote. So Sanders' vote wasn't a big surprise, but I think it was a bit of a surprise that he failed to persuade A single Democrat on the committee to join him. Changing NIH's mission to focus on drug pricing isn't more important to them than supporting the president's choice of an NIH director, who everyone agrees is highly qualified. The Democrats on the committee who voted for her included some who've sponsored drug price control legislation that's much more that's much more serious that would impose much more controls on drug prices than the Inflation Reduction Act. Maggie Hassan, Ed Markey, and Tammy Baldwin. The HELP vote also showed, I think, that support for NIH has eroded among Republicans. The five Republican HELP members who voted against Verdeignola's confirmation said they did that because they opposed NIH support for research on gender-affirming care and on health care disparities, and they expressed opposition to NIH's COVID-19 uh, performance and its policies.
3: Steve, in the past, we've sometimes talked about the idea that some members of Congress don't necessarily understand the nuances or take the time to understand the nuances, but this sort of suggests actually that those Democratic senators actually do understand the limitations, some of the issues around drug pricing, certainly the limitations of NIH in, in really being able to make an impact there. Is that how you see it?
2: No, not really. I think it's got a lot more to do with the fact that this is the president's choice and um, they're going to support the president. And that I think that they realize that having a congressionally, a a Senate-confirmed leader of the NIH is really important. It's an agency that controls a budget of almost $50 billion a year. And if they had rejected uh, Bertignoli, they wouldn't get another chance in this Congress. We'd be going through the next election without a uh, congressionally, without a Senate-confirmed leader of the NIH. So I think those are the more important factors. I, I don't think that it would be accurate to say that Maggie Hassan or Ed Markey or Tammy Baldwin looked at this and said, oh, well, we don't think that NIH should take aggressive steps to control drug prices. I think they just thought that it's more important right now to get a confirmed director. And and also, by the way, Monica Bertignoli didn't say that she's not going to do those things in her confirmation hearing. She just declined to really say what she was going to do. She just said that she's going to follow the law. She said that, and and different people interpret that in different ways. So we don't really know what she's going to do. The things that Sanders wants her to do is to exercise NIH's margin authority to break the patents on drugs that were developed using NIH IP if the prices are deemed to be too high to insert the the reasonable pricing clause back into agreements between NIH and, and industry and to stop issuing uh, exclusive licenses
0: to companies for NIH technology and instead to insist on non-exclusive licenses. Great. Thank you, Steve. That's really interesting. And you've got the story up from last week on that process. Sticking in Washington, the latest from the other dramas going on in Washington is the Inflation Reduction Act. And today was the first public listening session. Steve. What the hell is a listening session?
2: Well, I have to confess that I had to jump off of it after an hour to get to record this podcast. So I didn't listen to the end of the whole thing. But the basic idea is that there were people from the public who signed up and said that they had something that they wanted to say. And CMS picked them by lottery to decide who would get to speak. People were asked to reveal if they had a conflict of interest, but weren't required to do so. This session was about... Uh, Eliquis. They're going to have sessions about each of the drugs that were on the first list of drugs that are going to be part of the Medicare drug price negotiation program under the IRA. And it was interesting to me that several of the patients who spoke expressed concerns about PBMs deploying utilization management programs to limit access to Eliquis. They said that eloquist is an important drug to them, that it has a, a lot of benefits over the old drug, warfarin, that was used for the same conditions for. AFib. And one also mentioned a GAO study that found that in some cases, PBMs get large rebates and charge plans more than their their net cost for, for drugs. So I think that one of the outcomes from this first listening session might be that CMS is encouraged to scrutinize the behavior of PBMs more closely to ensure that they don't restrict access to drugs that have had prices lowered as a result of the IRA. I think that future listening sessions are likely also to provide opportunities for groups to emphasize drug pricing concerns and also to bring up concerns that they have about what they believe to have been anti-competitive behavior by drug companies, particularly behaviors that have extended monopolies beyond the period that some of them believe that they should have been expired.
3: So, Steve, what is the outcome an upshot of a meeting like this. What, what should we expect going forward?
2: Headlines. Uh, attention. It's not clear exactly how it's going to be used. The law says that CMS has to take, has to solicit comments from patients and from the public and has to somehow take them into consideration in its negotiations with companies over pricing. One of the things I think that these sessions will highlight is. To the extent to which drugs that are on this list provide benefits that aren't being provided by older, cheaper drugs, especially generic drugs. And if patients emphasize that and if CMS kind of absorbs that information, it could help the companies in arguing for higher prices because they'll they say, look, they really are providing an important benefit to patients
0: relative to alternatives, especially generic alternatives that are far less expensive. Wonderful. Well, thanks very much, Steve, for that and for the uh, education on listening sessions. I'm sure uh, that will be uh, <laughs> be interesting to see how these sort of evolve as we go forward here. So finally, our uh, deal of the day is Abingworth's new fund that will bring more cash for late-stage development. About 18 months after Abingworth was acquired by the PE firm, the Carlisle Group, the VC firm raised a $356 million co-investment fund to invest alongside its million clinical co-development fund two that it closed in 2021. So combined, that gives the firm nearly a billion dollars to invest in late stage clinical programs. Essentially, with the fall off in capital raising by the sector over the past couple of years, basically has translated into there, there being more scenarios where biotechs are looking for creative ways to finance their pipelines. And so this sort of risk sharing co-development route is getting more and more attention. Our colleague, Paul Bananos, spoke to Kurt Von Emster about the deal, and he told him how Abingworth used to see about 15 appropriate types Types of deals a year, but that figure is now closer to 200. So, pretty incredible increase in companies looking for opportunities to co-develop their pipelines. He said in particular, medium-sized biotechs appear to be one of the primary areas of focus, but that the breadth of companies interested is widening. He said that opportunities are also coming from larger pharma's, some of which are rethinking their decisions to seek expanded labels for small molecule products in the wake of the IRA that we just discussed. So. Really good opportunity for companies that are have a late stage phase three program, but they potentially don't have all of the capital they need. Those are the opportunities that a, that a fund like this is really looking for.
3: So, Stephen, in these really down market days when everybody seems to be watching the XBI tank, this is private capital. Who, who's this good for? Who should take? Who should be enthusiastic about this, Stephen?
0: So, I think. Everyone who is a late stage company. So I think you know Abingworth has worked with public companies, they've worked with private companies. So this is really anyone who has a late stage program, but maybe is a bit worried about their cash runway and whether they they've got the cash to push themselves well beyond um, an endpoint. Really, this is to come in and essentially you negotiate a um, a set return, and then. Um, Abingworth provides capital to fund and even to to run the trial in in a lot of cases. And so if you you know some companies use it for ways to get parallel development going if they want to try and be more aggressive with their development. but I think in a market like today, it's an opportunity where companies are worried about their cash runway and to help them really get something over the line that they still have a lot of belief in. Well, before we go, a reminder that you can find the latest episode of our sister podcast, the BioCentury Show featuring Steve's conversation with Amicus's John Crowley at biocenturyshow.com. Thanks for listening this week. All of Biocentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare
1: and education.